0: I do feel like personally I'm getting older. I know that's a fact, isn't it? We all get older. But there's, there's people now, I meet them like policemen and doctors, and I think, you're really young, aren't you, for, to be doing that? I don't know when that happens, but it started. Yeah? <laughs> over, the, over the last four weeks, we've been going through the, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. We've called it the, the journey of the heart, and we've followed Jonah through his disobedience and bad attitude to to Nineveh. It's been challenging and we finished last week with Jonah chapter 4 and God's final words to the prophet. Should I not be concerned about that great city? We finished with a question. And we're continuing now with the theme, the, the journey of the heart, but we're moving to Jesus, to Jesus following him as he heads for Jerusalem and the the events that led up to his death and resurrection. And I want to start with a question, a question that may be new to you. It certainly was when I heard it for the first time. And the question is this, was Jesus a serious theologian? Was he a serious theologian? Sure, Jesus was the, the son of God. Jesus was God here with us. But was he a serious theologian? Like how Jesus studied God, how Jesus understood God, how Jesus taught about God, how Jesus demonstrated God. Would he have been on a a level with the the serious theologians, the, the religious leaders of his time? Jesus told stories. He told stories called parables. Jesus worked miracles. Jesus healed people. Jesus delivered people from, from demons, he often opposed the outward religion and then retold or, or reframed the, the major themes of the Old Testament. But was he a serious theologian? What do you think? Or is it, as there is a, a danger of doing, that Jesus' theology, his understanding of God, for us now as we read it, is almost too simple, too simple ordinary, too familiar. And because of that, we all too easily pass over it. And I'm talking to myself here because I have this urge, this, this like desire to get close to Jesus. And I've realized that we need to allow the, the theology of Jesus, God's understanding of God, God's self-revelation of God to overwhelm us, to provoke us, to consume us gently. Gently guide us as we get closer to him. Jesus said, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was a a serious theologian, but the the language that he used was that of a a compassionate and gentle teacher, a man of understanding who used the, the familiar to reveal the heart of an awesome God. And he could do that because he was free. Free from the effects of pride and position and popularity. He didn't need to sound impressive. He had nothing to prove to anyone. And if we want to get close to Jesus, if we want to follow his journey of the heart, then we need to be alive to the the stories that Jesus told, the the, the miracles, the healings, the opposition that he faced. We need to sit down with our our Bibles and our, our minds open to the New Testament surroundings and see not only what Jesus said and did, but how, how. A long time ago, there were these rubber bands, rubber bands that you could put on your wrist. Lots of Christians wore them. Maybe some still do. And the originals, the first ones out, had these letters on them WWJD, which stands for What Would Jesus Do? It was memorable, but really only half of the story. See, I think we can reach Jesus' objectives. We can say what Jesus said, do what Jesus did, but in an un-Jesus way. And the full story comes when we answer the question, how? How would Jesus do it? And that's down to how we walk, how we act, how we feel, how we talk, how we gesture and pray. How we love and understand each other. And really, this is what I want us to do here with Jesus' journey of the heart. I want us to go for an overview, an overview of Luke chapter 18, because it seems like the start of all this. And the clock was ticking. There was an urgency to the message here. One chapter later in Luke chapter 19, Jesus rolled into Jerusalem. Four chapters later, Jesus was arrested. Five chapters later, Jesus was arrested. Crucified. This is Jesus' journey of the heart in his last days, in the days where what he said, what he did, would have lasting significance for all eternity. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus told two parables. The parable of the, the persistent widow and that of the, the two men who prayed. He had a, a dispute with his disciples about who who he should be giving his time to. And then when a rich young man showed up, Jesus challenged where he was at. And finally, Jesus predicted his own death for the third time. And still the disciples just couldn't understand it. It's a lot to cover in 30 minutes. So we're going to use the flip chart and put a timeline down here. This is more for me, really, because I got these new pens a number of weeks ago and I want an opportunity to use them. They show up really well, don't they? Right at the back, you can see that, can't you? Chris there on the sound deck, giving me the thumbs up. Yeah, they're working. Nice, so we've got two parables. We'll call them P1 and P2. We've got the dispute with the disciples. We'll do that D, D. We've got the uh, rich ruler, R R. Rich ruler. And we've got Jesus' prediction of his death. We'll call that P.D. There we go. Is that working for you? (laughs) Works for me? So, let's start. Let's start reading in Luke chapter 18 in verse 1. Luke chapter 18 verse 1. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. Luke, Luke, the, the writer of this gospel and recorder of all of this, gives us his understanding of the parable and what Jesus meant by it. Then Jesus told about this town where there was a, a judge that neither feared God nor cared about men. And in that town, there was a a widow that kept coming to that judge with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. This wasn't about what justice is. We're not told what that was. This was about the contrast, the contrast that, that Jesus set up, the contrast between the judge, the judge over here who was powerful, answerable to nobody, and the widow over here who was powerless, vulnerable to everybody. She wouldn't stand a chance or would she? But the one thing, the one thing the widow had was persistence. She simply wouldn't give up. And as much as the the judge refused, the widow kept putting herself in his way. Call it persistence. Call it committed. Call it furious. Whatever it was, it was exhausting for the judge and he wanted an easy life. And finally, he gave in not because he had changed you hear that in his reasoning the judge said even though even though i don't fear god or care about men yet because this widow keeps bothering me i will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming the powerless the powerless succeeds over the powerful, and there is in our faith, in our God, the incredible possibility that in prayer, in persistent, committed, furious prayer, that will be the outcome. The powerless will succeed over the powerful. Jesus said, "And, and will not God, will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. But it isn't over. It isn't over. Not yet. There is one more thing that Jesus added. He said, however, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And you think, oh, no, I was with you, Jesus, up till there. But faith, persistent prayer, Will Jesus, will the, the Son of Man find it? Will he hear it? Will he see it? Is it there in me, that persistent prayer? Is it there in us? That is the question Jesus asked. So what does it look like, this persistent prayer? For me, it isn't endless repetition. It isn't painfully long prayer sessions. It is living a life, a life before God, in front of God, where we present ourselves with our prayers, our hopes, our fears, day by day, moment by moment. Oswald Chambers, he wrote, the point of prayer is not to get answers from God, but to have perfect and complete oneness with him. And if we miss that, if we only pray because we want answers, we will get frustrated with all this we'll stop praying we'll give up on it but if we persist in prayer because we've come to love this journey of the heart this time with god then prayer will change us it will change us it will cause us to become more like him at one at one with him What Jesus stopped short of in the parable was to give us a a time frame for for all of this. Is this persistent prayer for for six months, a a year, ten years, is it longer? A lifetime? A lifetime of prayer? I suspect that it is. Jesus moved from this parable to another. Again, Luke, the recorder of this, he gives us his understanding of what Jesus meant. He wrote in verse 9, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. And to be honest, to be honest, when Jesus stood in front of a a crowd and there were people there who were confident of their own righteousness, it was like a, a red rag to a bull, if I can refer to the Son of God like that. These were the moments that he saved his most provocative teaching for. The parable went like this. Two men went up to a a temple to pray. And again, there was a a contrast. The one man was a, a Pharisee. And if you were listening to this for the first time, this is who you would have been impressed with. This was the good guy. This is who you would have cheered for. So let's try. Let's get interactive with this. When I say the Pharisee, you've got to say, hooray. You up for that? The Pharisee. Great. Great, it's working. The other man was a tax collector, and you can see what's coming. This was the bad guy, the one you would have booed at. The tax collector. You were feeling that one more, weren't you? The tax. Is there any tax collectors here? That's all right then. We'll keep going with this. See, because we've heard this parable a number of times we know where jesus is going to our ears the pharisees are already the bad guys the tax collectors are already <laughs> the tax collectors are already the good guys sort of sort of and we've moved on from the controversy of it all the unexpected reversal of fortune that jesus was teaching here the pharisee <laughs> See, the thing with when you start something like this, when does it stop? Do you know, when does it stop and you, you start getting serious again? The Pharisee. Someone's gonna do it, aren't they? The Pharisee stood up and just keep going, just keep going. The Pharisee just stood up and prayed about himself. He said, God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice a week, and give a tenth of all I get. Sounds impressive. He was the man to to be like, the one that everyone cheered for, but the tax collector, still going on, the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. No one, no one, no one in that crowd except Jesus would have seen What was coming next? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus' listeners would have been like, no way, no way, what happened there? The tax collector, the sinner, He went home justified before God. They would have been dumbstruck. And many of them, the the confident ones, would have been hugely offended by what Jesus did there. And there is a word, a word used there, an old word that can get lost in our society. The word is sinner or sin. And no one likes that word because it comes with personal responsibility And what I see and what I hear in in society is that everything must be someone else's fault. There must be someone or or something to, to blame it on. But that isn't the teaching of Jesus. He calls for personal responsibility. When I, when we do things wrong, think things wrong, I'm responsible for it. We are responsible for it and it's called sin. And I don't know about you, but the, the closer I get to God, the more conscious I become of my own faults and failings, my own sins. And that isn't false humility, that is reality. Someone once said the sense of sin is the, the measure of a soul's awareness of God. The sense of sin is the measure of a soul's awareness of God. We are all sinners saved by grace, and, the, and the, the closer we get to God, the more aware of that truth we become. But we shouldn't live with our heads down, feeling helpless, because we're not helpless. That is where the, the gospel comes in, the good news about Jesus Christ, that we can be forgiven, our heads raised up, free from our sins. Jesus, Jesus, the journey of the heart, isn't about how far gone we are but how far God has gone to save us. After telling the the two parables, there was more going on around Jesus. Individuals, families, a crowd, and, and, and people carried babies to him to have Jesus touch them. A dispute broke out, but not with the crowd, but with his own disciples. About who? Who Jesus should be giving his time to. And Jesus rebuked them, he called the the children to him and he said, let let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a, a little child will never enter it. For me here, not only does Jesus set some entry requirements for the kingdom of God, He connects in. He connects in with a theme that goes right through the Bible. And the theme is God. God as our Father and us. Us as his children. And in that, I sense something that's in all of us. There's a a story written by Ernest Hemingway. You may have heard it before, but I want to retell it because it demonstrates so well what I'm talking about here. There was a, a Spanish father who decided to be reconciled, get back together with his son, who had run away to Madrid. The father, now feeling remorse, upset about what had happened, took out this ad in the El Liberal newspaper. He wrote this. He wrote, "Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa." Paco is a a common name in Spain. And when his father went to the square, he found 800 young men named Paco waiting for their fathers. I sense something in all of us. A need to be reconciled. To be in relationship, a loving relationship with our Father God. And Jesus here, when he rebuked his disciples, when he held the babies, when he surrounded himself with children. Personally, I see this as one of the most sacred pictures of the the good news that we can be in, in relationship with our Father. I don't even know if words cover this. You have to see the picture. You have to live in that place where we are children again, allowed to be children again. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And I can see it in my my own life now with my own two and a half year old son, Jay. He just wants to spend time with me and it isn't about what we do. It's just about being together, father and son, that loving relationship. And when we get or caught up in our adult worlds that can be full of status and position and pride and and agendas and and stress, then Jesus pulls us back and says, receive the kingdom. Receive the the kingdom of God like a, a little child. The journey of the heart is spending time with God for no other reason than because we love him. Out of the crowd, out of the crowd, an individual was seen. Jesus was met by a a certain ruler that asked him a question. He said, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The conversation between Jesus and the the rich ruler continued on. The ruler was confident. He had kept all the, the commandments. But even he, even he seemed to know there must be something more that God was looking for? And he got his answer. Jesus said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. It was too much. Too much for this rich ruler to have heard. And it seemed by his reaction that he turned and walked. And when I read that, when I read that, I think, Surely, surely Jesus doesn't want me to sell everything I have or does he? This is the the challenge, the, the challenge of this conversation with Jesus because I'm not sure and I think it's between us and God. But I do know, I do know that each time I read this through it moves something more in me, in my heart. It pulls on my life, it pulls on my, my bank account, on my generosity. It says, you're not done with this yet. It won't leave me alone. Jesus didn't mean I should sell everything, did he? I suspect that one day in the future, that may be exactly what Jesus means. When the conversation finished with the, the rich ruler, Jesus's followers showed their Frustration with all of this. It must have felt impossible, like the bar was being set too high, the entry requirements. You had to you had to be like a little child, and, and then you had to sell everything you had. And those who heard this, they said, Who then can be saved? And Jesus knew it. He knew it. It was and it still is impossible for us to save ourselves. He said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Whenever, whenever anyone becomes a Christian, whenever anyone commits themselves to following Jesus, it is supernatural. Something happens there that only God can do. That new life, that being born again, we can't fully explain it, but it changes our lives now and for eternity. Finally, Finally, where I want to leave Luke chapter 18 is in verses 31 to 34, where Jesus predicted his own death. He described the, the events that would happen, that he would be turned over to the Gentiles, mocked, insulted, spat on, flogged and, and killed, but, but that he would rise again on the, the third day. The clock was, was ticking. That is where Jesus was going. He knew it, but the disciples, they just didn't get it. it says that the, the disciples didn't understand any of this. And it makes me think, I know how they were feeling. I can relate to the disciples' their confusion about Jesus. It wasn't the first time. It wasn't the first time that that had happened, that the disciples just didn't get it. Jesus once asked them if they were still that dumb. Dense, thick, not sure what it meant in the original. <laughs> about, about a month ago, about a month ago I was out over Clent and I didn't, I didn't see it but I heard it. This, this hammering, this beak on a, on a tree, this slightly hollow noise that was echoing around and I realised that it was a, a woodpecker. A woodpecker. And then I had this thought, nothing world changing but it, It spoke to me in our faith in our lives we're often like woodpeckers and the disciples in their confusion here and at other times they were like woodpeckers but Jesus didn't go looking for replacements and he isn't looking to replace us he's forming something in all of us See, woodpeckers have a a skull that's designed for impact and their brain is suspended so that for long periods of time they can be hammering on trees without doing permanent damage to themselves. Basically, woodpeckers are hard-headed. And I think about myself in this where I'm at in my life and faith, the things I get right and the things that I get wrong, the things that I understand and the things that I don't understand, the things that are getting through, the the things that aren't getting through this skull and this brain. And I'm sure you can relate to this. God is speaking. God is forming something in me, forming something in all of us. But I am like the woodpecker, hard-headed, hard-headed, hammering away. Anyone else relate? to that and when it comes to God I think Jesus demonstrated that that is all right it's all right to be hard-headed because most of his disciples were hard-headed what is important though what is important is that we're hammering on the right tree the right tree even if we're not getting it not understanding all of it getting it wrong being hard-headed at least we're hammering on the right tree hammering on the, the door of what is important. And I know, I know that Jesus' words are life to me. They are eternal life. There isn't any other tree out there to be hammering on. Only this one, the word of God, the life of Jesus, because that's where it's at. Eugene Peterson, he wrote this. He said, the way there is Jesus is not only the roads that Jesus walked in Galilee, but also the way Jesus walked those roads. The way he acted, felt, talked, gestured, prayed, healed, taught, and died. The way Jesus walked. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus called himself the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the way, and he calls us to follow. And to do that, to be on this journey of the heart, we need to know how he walked. Just thinking back to a, a comment someone made about me one Friday night. I was just leaving the, the building and I was walking down the, the drive here at the, at the side. And they must have been watching me from behind, not sure why they were doing that. But later, later when they saw me again to, to speak to, they said, you know, your walk just like your dad, just like your dad. They must have been watching me all down the drive. And there is another old word here, not used often now, and I need to define it first. The word is gait, gait, and it means a person's manner of walking. Say it after me, gait, gait. Try and get that into a conversation next week, gait. <laughs> And my gait, my gait, the the way that I walked, that person watching me could match it with my dad. And I find things like that incredible, like like how our gait gets passed on from one generation to the next, that level of detail being formed in our being. The thing is, it started all over again. My son, Jay. He is gaining my mannerisms, my sayings. Sometimes he he stands in the middle of the room and he says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. (laughs) That's me after a particularly difficult day. (laughs) And he talks with his hands. And no doubt, no doubt as he grows up, he'll hate me for that, no. And no doubt, as he grows up, if you lined up the three of us, my dad, me, and jay our gait, the way we walk would be near identical. And in what we've done in the last 30 minutes, going through this one chapter out of Luke, we get to see how Jesus walked his way, how he acted, felt, talked, gestured, prayed, healed, and taught. And in the next couple of weeks, We get to see how he died. I want to walk like Jesus. To follow the way. Go on the the journey of the heart. Becoming more like him through persistent prayer. Being aware of our sins because we're getting close to him. Spending time with God for no other reason than we love him. Being generous. Hammering on the door of what is important. And this is about what happens now. And it's about what happens later at home, what happens in the morning, what happens every day this week. It's about how we walk. And if we're walking with the, the Father's gate, if we're walking like God walked. The Apostle Paul, writing to the, the church in Galatia, he wrote this, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, Until Christ is formed in you. When it comes to Jesus, it is about what is going on inside of us. Where the way of Jesus, how Jesus did it, is being formed within us every day of our lives. And I'd like us to respond to this with a song. With a song. The words go like this. And Lee and the team, if you want to come back. I'll just read them through. That is preferable to me, singing them through. Just read them through and try and own these words as I say them and then as you sing them. It goes like this. All I am, Lord, all I'll ever be is all for you, Lord. Take all of me. All I want, Lord, all I ever need is all of you, Lord, in all of me. All I know, Lord, all that I can see is all your mercy over all of me. In the chorus, you are worthy, you are Wonderful. For your glory take all of me. And we won't we won't get all of this in one go. Christ isn't formed in a in a moment. It comes with time, with a a lifetime. But in singing this, in singing this, let's pray and let's commit ourselves to giving more of ourselves to what Christ is doing in us. So let's pray. And we can stand as we pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, those words. Lord, take all of me. Take all of us. Lord Jesus, for every individual here, Lord, as they open themselves to what you're doing in their lives, and they're all going to be, we're all going to be in different places with this. But when we start believing in you, when we commit ourselves to you and we're born again, Lord, you start forming Christ in us. And Lord, I pray, Lord, as we sing this, something more of that would happen in each of our lives. God, lead by your spirit and form Christ in us. Pray that in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.